1: Donald Trump has tweeted that uh, caught red-handed, very disappointed that China is allowing oil to go into North Korea. There will never be a friendly solution to the North Korea problem if this continues to happen, exclamation point. Here to tell us a little bit more about North Korea and uh, the strategic options that the United States has is General Merrill McPeak. he's is a retired four-star general, me. Air Force Chief of Staff. He can be followed on Twitter at General McPeak. He, bas- he is currently in Lake Oswego, Oregon. Thank you very much for being with us, sir. And uh, he is also the author of the recently completed The Aerial View Trilogy. It is a three-volume memoir that takes the reader throughout uh, his career. General McPeak, thank you for your service as uh, we honor all of our servicemen and women. Your comments on North Korea, your thoughts and reactions to the president's handling of the situation.
2: Uh, Good morning, uh, Tim. Well, I think the North Korea uh, problem is the most important one facing our country, most important Uh, national security problem, and uh, it's visible, it's on the horizon, everybody can see it, even those who don't want to do anything about it understand that it constitutes a real threat to uh, the United States, uh, probably now and certainly in the next six months to a year. So I do believe that we ought to do something about it to take vigorous action. I'm not sure the president has uh, gone about it in the right way. I would have done it perhaps differently, but he's right in saying that we probably have to do something here and it may end up being a military uh, action that's required.
1: Now, you previously served as the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, uh, 1990 to 94. Uh, you served in Vietnam, over 260 missions there, uh, a variety of awards, a uh, Silver Star, Legion of Merit, Distinguished Flying Cross. If the president or someone on his staff called uh, General McPeak and said, Tony, I know they, they're they the only ones that get to call you that. If, if, <laughs> if they said, Tony, w- lay out for us, w- what would be some of my options? What would be some of the options that wouldn't blow us all up, but would really try to solve this problem?
2: Well, uh, blowing us all up is a real-life possibility here, especially if we do nothing. So, uh, first of all, I would favor any kind of action that we could take short of military intervention. You want diplomacy? Sign me up. You want to try to get China to lean on them? Great. Russia, uh, economic uh, sanctions, I'm all for all these steps. But so far, we've tried them all, it seems to me, and nothing's really worked. My opinion is that we'll probably have to intervene and help the North dismantle uh, their nuclear capability. And that means we would have to do some very specific targeting against nuclear infrastructure in the North and command and control. And, of course, at the same time, we'd have to go to work on those guns that are dug in in the reverse slopes of the hills north of uh, the demilitarized zone, which uh, range Seoul. So Seoul will be badly damaged in the opening moments of any military action there. And we simply have to start work uh, immediately trying to dig those guns out of the the caves that they're uh, in north of the DMZ. So this target set, uh, Pim, is rich. I mean, there's a very, very large number of aiming points that we have to go after immediately. And, uh, and, and it will be a tough campaign, no doubt about it. Uh, especially Seoul will take a lot of damage. Uh, but our alternative is to allow this crazy, uh, perhaps non-deterrable uh, regime in the north to have the capability to wipe out Washington and uh, New York City and Chicago uh, you know, with twenty twenty five minutes uh, notice, and uh, that's unacceptable.
1: General, is it uh, is there any tem- is there any way we can look at, for example, our uh, relationship with Pakistan, which is a nuclear power? Uh, is it possible to leave North Korea with a with nuclear weapons and still reach some kind of accommodation that would leave them in place but without these threats?
2: I don't see it. I mean, look, uh, the Pakistanis have nuclear weapons uh, to give them a deterrence capability against India. Uh, I'm not happy about that. I'd be much happier if uh, uh, nobody had nuclear weapons. I think we'd be much more secure in in the United States because our conventional military capabilities are far greater than anybody else's. So if all nuclear weapons disappeared, uh, we'd all be better off for it. But in the case of judging, you know, from the more extreme to the less extreme, uh, this uh, government in North Korea is perhaps the worst <laughs> in the world that we should want to see have nuclear weapons. And uh, the, the risk is simply too great uh, to let them hold uh, Amer- large American cities at hostage. Uh, we simply, in my opinion, we simply have to, to dismantle, their nuclear capability, and put them under international instruction uh, inspection for years to make sure that that it doesn't uh, rebuild.
1: All right, I want to turn your attention now to uh, the Middle East and Iran, which, of course, uh, then begs the question of potential nuclear weapons. Uh, Your thoughts on what is going on currently in the Middle East with the potential confrontation between Iran and Saudi Arabia? And just as a note, you know, you've taken a lot of flack uh, over the course of your career for some of your thoughts about the Middle East. Give us your ideas.
2: (laughs) Well, uh, I think the Middle East is uh, a chronic problem. You know, that's been with us forever, uh, and uh, there's no sign that uh, we can sort out the issues that are involved there. I do think that the, uh, the treaty uh, or the agreement with the Iranians to put a pause on their nuclear program for a decade or so was a very good one and one, one we should support, uh, and perhaps gives us time to work out some longer-term relationship with the Iranians. Uh, at the end of the day... It's just going to be hard for us to pick the, a course that makes sense in the Middle East. I mean, every, everything we try to do seems to have awful consequences, including what we're doing today. I mean, we spent, what, a trillion dollars in, in Iraq with the second Iraq war, maybe more than that, before we're done. and lost uh, thousands of people, and uh, it's not obvious to me that Iraq is better off today than it was before we intervened to remove Saddam Hussein. So, uh, uh I don't ha- have any brilliant ideas about what to do there it's kind of like having cancer you just sort of learn to live with it and hope you can die of something else
1: well I th- thank you very much for your time and just want to mention once again uh your uh, the aerial view trilogy the uh, three volume memoir uh, just quickly uh general I't know can you tell me what was the favorite single seat aircraft that you flew? Because I know that you flew F-100 Super Sabres and F-104 Starfighters. What was your favorite aircraft?
2: My all-time favorite was the F-16. Wonderful airplane. Uh, You know, a lot of innovation there. But the thing is when you climb up the ladder and strap the thing on you feel small. It's really good to feel small when you're entering a fight. <laughs>
1: Thanks <laughs> very you're much. Hard to hit. <laughs> general Merrill McPeak, retired four-star general, former Air Force Chief of Staff, his book, The Aerial View Trilogy. Delinquencies, auto loan delinquencies, they are rising. Credit card charge-offs have increased. Is this a problem for U.S. banks? Let's ask David Fanger. He is senior analyst at Moody's Investor Services, and he joins us in our 1130 studios. David, thank you for being here. So are these problems for banks, or have they figured out a way around this?
3: Well, uh, certainly what you cited on in terms of auto loan delinquencies, credit card delinquencies, is um i would say that both of those markets are in a little bit of a different position in terms of where they are post crisis uh no bank has most banks do not have significant exposures to either of those businesses they're one of many businesses that us banks are engaged in so while we are expecting those delinquencies um, could rise further um, as long as the employment picture is healthy, and it is, they're unlikely to to significantly rock the boat. Uh, what we've seen in both cases is, you know, uh, gradual deterioration in underwriting standards, particularly in honor lending, where we've seen for the past several years uh, weaker underwriting standards, which is now leading to higher delinquencies. Weaker
1: underwriting standards and longer duration of the actual loan, correct?
3: That's correct. Yes.
1: Would that also have an effect on people's ability to pay?
3: Well, actually, the the longer duration of the loan Should is be helpful. Intended, intended to help them. So, so when an auto buyer uh, is looking at their payment, the amount of the payment, um, a longer-lived loan makes it easier to meet your monthly payments. The challenge for longer-tenured loans is... Um, uh really, again, in, in a weaker economic environment, um, the, the the ability to pay back the remainder of that loan may be more challenged. Uh, and what we see indeed is increasing willingness on the part of lenders when a buyer wants to uh, – an auto owner wants to buy a new car – they have a significant remaining balance on their existing loan, and lenders have been increasingly going to roll those into the new loan, which creates an even larger problem potentially down the road.
1: Okay. But before we get to that road, I have a feeling that banks have a way to become profitable despite all this. And you've issued a recent report. What about the health of the U.S. banking system right now? Overcapitalized?
3: Um, Well, again, so Moody's you know, rates banks, we focus on the interests of bondholders, and we would not view banks as being overcapitalized. We certainly think the improvements to capital at banks have been positive for creditors and bondholders um, in the aftermath of the financial crisis. Um, the, the trajectory we think over the next year, um, particularly for the largest U.S. banks, the global investment banks, is positive um, because we are looking at a, a, a gradual broadening of growth across the global economy. Uh, we are looking at higher interest interest rates in the U.S., and so particularly for those banks that are core funded, that is, has significant reliance on deposits for funding, um, higher interest rates um, have been positive and are likely to continue to be positive for U.S. banks.
1: So expanding net interest margins? Exactly. The loans that the banks make... Have they at all been crowded out by non-bank financial lenders? Because you keep hearing that banks can't hold certain assets, don't hold certain assets, and that the place has been taken by non-bank financials.
3: Well, to some extent, that's by choice. Um, Certainly, for example, in auto lending, there's a significant portion of the auto lending business is conducted through by non-bank financials. Um, uh, I think bank only represent about 40 percent of the total auto loan market. Um, And there, where we've seen weaker underwriting, deteriorating underwriting standards, um, you know, there's, there's paper that banks don't want to hold, their loans banks don't want to make that the non-bank financial sector is more willing to make, and, and, and frankly, that's positive for banks in terms of credit risk.
1: Talk about real estate. Uh, let's start with commercial real estate and bank exposure to C&I loans, for example.
3: Um, so we had been concerned about the rate of growth of C&I loans um, over the past couple of years. Uh, normally, um, we look at C&I loan growth as, as you know, a healthy rate of growth for C&I loans should not deviate that much from the rate of nominal GDP growth. Think about it, the rate of growth of the economy is the rate at which loans should grow. they're growing much faster than corporations are leveraging up, Um, which ultimately can be negative for credit risk. Um, We saw a rate of growth for Sinai lending in excess of nominal GDP growth for several years However, over the most recent year, that rate of growth has slowed to some extent, as well as nominal GDP growth has accelerated. So we're, we're a little bit more uh, comfortable, if you will, with the current rate of growth for c lending. Are
1: there any specific geographical issues that we need to pay attention to? Because many of the problems that created the 2007-2008 financial crisis were centered in areas where mortgages were made very inexpensive for people that probably should not have been able to access them. But some were exceptions. Like, for example, in Texas, you didn't see this happen.
3: Um, At this point, I'm not sure I can, in the U.S., at any rate, can highlight specific geographic regions um, that are, 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 are performing better or worse off that are necessarily affecting the bank's Uh, credit profile. I think it's, we we focus on the larger banks. Uh, Those banks typically tend to have fairly broad footprints um, and so therefore are a little bit less exposed or vulnerable to a specific geographic. Like to an
1: energy market or to a a housing market.
3: Precisely. And certainly the energy markets have, have had some challenges over the last couple of years. And and, um, but the but the banks have been able to, although they have did suffer a period of higher loss rates on some energy loans, the overall impact on, on bank earnings and risk profile was relatively modest.
1: Thank you very much for coming in and spending time with us. David Fanger is senior analyst for Moody's Investor Services, giving us uh, an outlook for 2018 for the U.S. banking industry.
0: Joining me
1: now is Brian Chapata. He is our U.S. Treasuries reporter for Bloomberg News. And Brian can be followed on Twitter at bchapata, that's t a. All right, uh, double P-A-T-T-A. Uh, great story today where you go through what the experts like BlackRock and Goldman Sachs are saying about the bond market and their Calls for 2018. Let's go through them. Let's begin with BlackRock. What are they suggesting if you're in the world of fixed income?
4: Well, I was going in alphabetical order here Ah, with these big money managers. So, the thing about BlackRock is that you go through their 2018 outlook, and what's interesting is is they have no overweight recommendations in the entire (laughs) fixed income landscape. Um, You know, whether it's, you know, they're neutral on munis, uh, US credit, emerging markets, things like that, Uh, don't like treasuries much or European sovereigns. but their, uh, their chief fixed income strategist, Jeff Rosenberg, basically said, you know, it's all well and good when everyone's buying and you can flip bonds and make a profit. Everyone, everyone gets a trophy, essentially. Uh, but the risk is that once that stops and the selling begins, everyone's left with all these illiquid securities you can't sell and you have to take big losses. So, you know, the, and he wants to be on that side of the he trade. He would rather be on that side of the chain. He says, go up in credit quality and, you know, be content with, you know, maybe a little bit lower returns. In return for being able to get out of your position, if you absolutely need to,
1: was the BlackRock was his position an outlier when it came to some of the others that you uh, interviewed? For example, at Fidelity Investments or Goldman Sachs.
4: You know, uh, there's a lot of caution I think underlying a lot of these uh, bond. Well, they are bond, bond investors. Yeah, after they are bonds. Right? So they're they're yeah they're pessimists by uh, by trade. No, um, but you know, Ford O'Neill at Fidelity Investments, he was uh, Morningstar's fixed income fund manager of the year this year. Uh, and basically, or sorry, in 2016, and he basically said, you know, I really want to protect <laughs> all the gains I've made over the last two years next year. Um, try not to do anything too uh, too exotic, uh, you know, add some inflation protection. Uh, Tips.
1: He likes those uh, inflation, right. uh, treasury inflation prote- protected securities. He says inflation is going to accelerate in 2018.
4: Yep. I mean, people said it was going to accelerate this year. So you do have to take it with a little bit with a grain of salt. Um, but Again, like the inflation trade this year. I mean, that was like the the buzzword going into the start of uh, 2017. Um, didn't exactly materialize, but uh, we'll see what happens this year. He also likes uh, some floating rate securities, which will reset higher with Fed rate hikes. So, you know, protecting yourself both on the long end if inflation starts to accelerate, also on the short end if the Fed continues hiking rates. And he also mentioned Brazil and Mexico. Yeah, Brazil's a, a fan favorite among these among all these folks. Um, you know, obviously, they offer uh, you know much higher yields than you can get anywhere in sort of the you know typical developed markets. So uh, if you're looking for some yield pickup, uh, that's a place to be, along with Mexico. Um, I know that Goldman Sachs also mentioned places like Hungary, Poland, uh, Colombia uh, to stay in South America, uh, and uh, Czech Republic.
1: Yeah, this is uh, Mike Swell, right, over at uh, Goldman Sachs Asset Management. He also says volatility. So let's just go just so we understand this. Uh, BlackRock, they're basically not that excited. Be careful. Increase credit quality. Uh, Fidelity, inflation may be accelerating, so be mindful there. But we like Brazil and Mexico. Goldman Sachs, also Brazil and Mexico, but volatility.
4: Right, volatility. I mean, it, it's so low. I mean, we all. I mean, I'm sure you know. With the VIX, whether, whether you're looking at the VIX or whether you're looking at um, measures of uh, bond market volatility, like the Move Index from Merrill Lynch. I mean, they're all they set record lows this year. Just kept grinding lower. Um, it's just been a steady march higher in equities and sort of a range-bound treasury market. So the idea that volatility will pick up. Um, it's sort of something that's, you know, I mean, it might happen, but also it's like everyone wants that to happen. So they're hoping that it happens um, in a lot of ways just because, you know, if you have active fixed income, which all these all these people are basically with the exception, I guess, of, of Vanguard, who I also spoke with um, – I mean, you want it to pick up. You want opportunities. Everything is being bought right now, so there's not a lot of opportunities to sort of find things on the cheap. What does J.P. Morgan Asset Management see as a good strategy for 2018? So Bob Michelle at uh, J.P. Morgan uh, Asset Management uh, is probably one of the more aggressive folks that I that I talked with. Um, he likes uh, European additional tier one securities, uh, cocoa bonds, I believe they're also referred to as, uh, and high yield. Uh, within Europe, he just thinks Europe looks healthy uh, and its uh, economy is you know maybe a year or so behind the. US as far as picking up. Uh, so uh, more good things to come from there. Uh also likes a steeper yield curve, which is kind of interesting. Um, other people are saying that as well. Pacific uh, PIMco also thinks the yield curve uh, uh, will steepen as well. So uh, that would be a departure obviously from this year where the big trend has been, especially in the last few months of the year this relentless flattening as short-term yields rise where long-term yields hold steady.
1: I, I like uh, the point from uh, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. What don't they like? Anything the central bank in Europe, the European Central Bank has purchased. TCW, let's uh, tell us, what did Tad uh, Ravel at TCW say?
4: Yeah, I mean, he is sort of in the camp of BlackRock, I would say, um, just sort of protecting yourself against uh, potential swing uh, in the other direction where there's a big sell-off. In bonds or stocks or both, uh, just markets in general. Uh, He's just saying be happy with a two and a half to three and a half percent return. You know, obviously in an era where you know the S and P 500 gains you know six and a half percent in a quarter, uh, you know maybe people might not be too pleased with that. But it's something that you know if you want to diversify and you know not be too exposed, if you feel like markets are a little frothy, um, you know, going up in credit quality, high quality corporate bonds. Agency mortgages, you know, take that, clip that coupon essentially, and uh, have less price volatility than some of the other uh, more risky securities. Thanks for being with us. Always a pleasure. Brian Chapata, he is a U.S. Uh,
1: Treasury supporter for Bloomberg News. And yes, he can be followed on Twitter at B Chapata, C H A Ford's luxury brand, Lincoln. What is the future for the brand? Well, here to help us understand it is uh, Jamie Butters. He's our U.S. Autos reporter for Bloomberg. And uh, Jamie, always a pleasure. You can be followed on Twitter at Mittenhawk. Uh, M I T T E N, and then just Hawk. H A W K. All right, Mittenhawk. Tell us what is the deal with uh, the Lincoln brand. For, tell us how many do they sell and what are they trying to accomplish.
5: You know, Lincoln is a is a challenged brand here in the U.S. It's uh, you know the the big brands, the leaders in the luxury market, the volume luxury market, are you know Mercedes, uh, BMW, and Lexus, and they all sell 300,000 or more a year, and Lincoln you know barely cracks 100,000. So it's not really getting enough volume to justify you know the cost of product development and uh, and advertising support and all that. But it's not a simple decision at all. Uh, you've got uh, you've got these contracts with dealers out there, and you, and you've got a lot of growth coming for Lincoln in China, and it's kind of like with GM and Buick. And Buick's not a great brand in the U.S. either, but it, I think there's a sense that in order for an American brand to have credibility in China, it needs to continue to be sold in the U.S. So uh, it's a it's a tough tough call for Jim Hackett at C, the CEO of Ford.
1: So you mean that Matthew uh, McConaughey is is not really going to be able to move these Lincolns off the off the lot? I understand he's going to be starring in a couple of new Lincoln commercials, and uh, you get to watch them during college uh, football playoffs on uh, New Year's Day.
5: Well, that'll be fun. Uh, the, the commercials have been uh, entertaining at times. They've certainly inspired some other entertainment. Uh, a lot of comedians have had fun. Uh, Riffing on spoofing on him. Uh but no, you know, I think he brings some uh some fun to the brand and gets it some attention and maybe hits at some of the the cool factor that they're trying to capture. But in but the way it plays out, they just they don't have enough volume, they don't have enough demand, and they're not selling at a high enough at high enough prices and profit margins. You know, you can get by on a hundred thousand a year if you're Porsche. <laughs> uh if you're Lamborghini, if you're Ferrari. You can sell a lot fewer than that, but uh, but Lincoln, you know, it needs it needs bigger volumes.
1: Well, doesn't it start at around thirty five to forty thousand dollars, or am I misreading that?
5: Yeah, that's probably about right for a, uh, for a Lincoln MKZ sedan. I mean, those are uh, but you're competing with a lot of other vehicles in that size and price category. What and, about, in, okay, so that's yeah, the, the sedan so the, you mentioned, sorry. but what, The good ones, so the, the hot ones for them are the, they've got the new Continental, right. uh, which is kind of an exciting throwback design, and the, the combined sales of the Continental and the vehicle it's replacing the MKS sedan, you know, they're up about 3,000, 3,600 vehicles this year. You take that out, and Lincoln sales would be down in line with the rest of the market. The other hot Lincoln, or potentially hot Lincoln, the other good name they have is Navigator, um, which is, you know, was one of the original big, you know, sort of hip hop, uh, very sleek uh, luxury type SUVs. And it has just been really left in the dust by the Escalade and uh, Mercedes and everyone else that wants to get in that space.
1: You mean that the $95,000 black label Navigator (laughs) in baby blue is not going to just sell itself?
5: It sure doesn't. It sure doesn't. Maybe if they'd done the Gold Wing Doors like they showed at the New York Auto Show a couple of years ago, uh, they could have captured. So it was, Why didn't they do attention. that? Oh, because it's really ridiculously hard <laughs> to manufacture. Uh, the same reason, you know, Tesla's had trouble with it. Uh, and that was really a signature thing for uh, for Elon Musk and Tesla. But it's really hard to do, especially in a reliable way. And I don't know if I, was, I saw some stuff, you know, at the show where they just they were really reluctant to demonstrate it any more than they had to. It worked perfectly at the press conference, but it was the rest of the time it was a little, um, you know, a little bulky, a little kludgy as it would kind of uh chunk its way open and closed
1: how are these uh the the service pilots working right that you've got a customer service pilot program you've got a concierge program chauffeur service and also a planned subscription service in some markets what's that doing to
5: the brand yeah it's um they're getting some mixed results i think they're getting you know they're getting to run some pilots and see what uh what will take uh Kind of like we're seeing with some of the other brands, uh, some others that are maybe pushing a little harder on it, like uh, Volvo and Lexus. But Lincoln is definitely trying to do some learning out there, trying to catch lightning in a bottle. Again, the, the key for them, or what it seems to be, is seeing what they can learn. and can do some experiments in the U.S. where they know the market pretty well, and then figure out what they need to bring to China to really accelerate their growth there.
1: Right, because Uh, that that seems right. That high end trim, uh, that seems like that could be pretty uh, attractive to those purchasers.
5: Right, they're trying to figure out. So one of the things they do, I asked, uh, you know, one of the uh, Lincoln marketing directors out out at the LA Auto Show. He had just come back from three years in China, and they're talking about expanding the uh, the the driver service that they would offer. and I said, you know, do you ever try that in in China, or is it redundant because so many people already have drivers? And he said, you know, they they tried it during the New Year's times when people tend to get festive, and uh, they got some interesting response to it. But it's uh, it's a real it's really challenging to trans to try to translate always what you can offer. Uh, in services across the globe. Got because it. different markets are so are so different.
1: Thanks very much. Jamie Butters, better known as Mitten Hawk, on Twitter. He's our U.S. Autos reporter for Bloomberg News.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast.
1: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
0: I'm on Twitter at LisaAbramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just a show
1: for you.